0: The UN and other international organizations were designed to give structure to what we like to call the international community, establishing and expressing what we like to call international laws and international norms. Over recent years, however, authoritarian regimes have been increasingly dominating these entities and utilizing them for their own decidedly illiberal ends. FDD scholars have just published a better blueprint for international organizations, a monograph with a forward by former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley and contributions from a dozen FTD scholars. They make clear what went wrong and what can and should be done to fix this broken, indeed, increasingly corrupt international system. Richard Goldberg, a Senior Advisor to FTD, is the Monograph's editor. He's with us today, as is Morgan Vigna, who served as Chief of Staff and Senior Policy Advisor to Ambassador Haley and is now an adjunct fellow at FTD. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased that you're joining us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are
1: no rules. Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader.
2: They're still killing guys who joined the
0: jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981,
1: who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct.
2: You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken.
0: Which, you know, remind us how and why the UN and its satellite organizations, how they were envisioned and, and how it got founded. That most people, most of the listeners, most of it were not alive when that happened. I I think it's kind of part of the 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 ether, but I don't think people really know the history.
2: Well, we take a look back and we go all the way back to League of Nations post-World War One. This there's an idea of President Wilson, other foreign leaders, that we could bring foreign powers together, the world power, so to speak, and have a community of adults of responsible stakeholders uh, who would look out for international peace and security that could be the ultimate decision makers on big decisions that the world has to come to that had failed in the past and usually resorted to violence, conflict, war, et cetera, hunger, uh, humanitarian strife, et cetera. We flash forward, obviously, the League of Nations was another failure. We had World War II. And so rising out of the ashes of a Second World War, uh, we had uh, a vision of a better version of the League of Nations, the United Nations. And a lot of the doctrines, conventions, organizations that had existed going back to the 19th century forward were sort of incorporated into this larger UN, United Nations system. And the idea was we now have a security council, uh, a core uh, permanent uh, member uh, structure, uh, along with others that get elected uh, to make the big decisions about international peace and security uh, to ensure that there isn't another world war. Uh, And also a a larger body, the General Assembly, the community of nations to come together to speak about issues of the day, uh, to bring issues to light, uh, to cast an eye on injustices uh, throughout the world. Uh, We had the uh, convention uh, on the Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, which uh, came uh, in 1948 to again say we just came out of the Holocaust uh, during the Second World War. We're not going to ever allow that to happen again. Uh, the General Assembly could be a place for that to be discussed and ultimately the Security Council as well. And then you had all the different satellite agencies that you referred to, some of them that predate the UN, some that were born out uh, of uh, 1945 and beyond discussions, uh, some that serve functional purposes. Uh, some that are setting standards for technology as technology evolves. Some that are humanitarian in nature, serving uh, certain types of humanitarian functional needs uh, throughout the world. Uh, some are advisory in nature, uh, and some are supposed to be there to be, you know, our guard posts to prevent disaster uh, as the world evolves into a chaotic and dangerous place. The World Health Organization uh, for potential uh, health and pandemic issues that could emerge. Uh, We think of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the watchdog uh, for nuclear weapons uh, and and nuclear-capable technologies, Uh, the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons to enforce uh, the Convention on Chemical Weapons uh, to ensure that uh, we don't have uh, chemical uh, warfare the way we saw in past world wars uh, and beyond in a localized nature. Uh, And then we have other mechanisms that are newer, that we thought would be good ideas, Uh, at least some did in the world, like the Human Rights Council, that perhaps uh, there could be this commission or council that came next uh, to try to stop human rights abuses and call out dictators. Uh, And what we've seen over time, when we look through the various agencies and mechanisms and bodies that have been established, is the good intentions that came decades ago from the United States and our allies have been hijacked, undermined, uh, really um, with pernicious intent, maligned by our adversaries. And we think about the worst authoritarian leaders in the world, and they view this as a stage where they can undermine U.S. interests, they can advance their own interests, they can whitewash their misdeeds, and. Things as simple as a human rights council that on its face sounds so obvious that we should have become so abused, uh, so corrupted, uh, that it actually is a forum for dictators and authoritarians to whitewash their own sins and to cast stones upon the world democracies, the United States, Israel, and and others. Uh, And so what we did was we we took a look at all these organizations. Uh, We boiled down to about a dozen. That we thought were able to typify many others Uh, functional organizations, uh, some of these standard making organizations, some of the specialized agencies of the UN, uh, also some of the one peacekeeping organization, peacekeeping, a major arm we could talk about. And we said, okay, we need a real strategy. For the 21st century, we have been lacking that through administrations. Towards the end uh, of, of the Trump administration, we definitely saw finally the emergence of recognition of China uh, being a malign actor that is corrupting so many organizations and advancing it. Obviously, we went through decades of the Cold War, where we knew we were in political warfare with the Soviet Union and many of these agencies and bodies. But we were able to lead an international order, uh, the democracies of the world in that Cold War to stand up to the Soviets and Soviet satellites to push back wherever they tried to corrupt. Now we have the post-Soviet Union Russia of Putin alongside uh, Xi's China that is sort of doing that only in 2.0 version, not just trying to cause angst to the United States. But advance their own interests, hijack organizations, see how they can use these resources and platforms to advance their own interests, and they are succeeding. We've, we have a semblance, I think, of people in Washington coming together to say, we have a problem here. We need to do something. But there's been little sort of coalescence around, this is what we need to do. You know, you have Democrats who say, we just need to engage we just need to pay our dues. We just need to sit at the table and things will go well. You have some republicans who say we need to burn it all down and, and and walk away and just cut our fundings and we'll just we'll just save the taxpayers some money. But when they look away, China and Russia are still there. The agencies didn't disappear. We didn't actually burn it down. We just walked away for a while. And so what we try to do with this monograph is to say, okay, let's take an agency by agency look. Let's make real recommendations and see how the administration and Congress could actually push back in some cases, could try to reclaim some of these organizations that have been hijacked, and in other cases, have an honest discussion about pulling out, degrading, replacing, where we know the system is so broken it can't be fixed.
0: Morgan, we going to... Nikki Haley was very clear and very candid in her memoirs, autobiography, whatever it was a very good book. I read it. I wrote a column about it, but that she didn't know a lot about this world, about international affairs, any of it before she took that job. I'm curious to know how she kind of climbed the learning curve when she got into the into the this. Very broad, grand cosmopolitan bureaucracy, and also your experience. I don't. I actually don't know how much you knew before you began to work for. Before you began to work in the UN system, was it? I mean, was it all very clear? Did you? Was it a a, a painful learning experience? Just reflect on both your experience and hers. I don't. I'm I'm very curious.
1: Sure. Thanks, Cliff. Good question. So um, Nikki's book, with all due respect, um, is is, is her second, and it, it really chronicles her time up in New York is uh, so well. Um, and I think she so beautifully and hilariously says at the beginning, you know, when Reince Priebus, you know, Trump's former chief of staff, you know, offered her the job of the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, she, she says, I don't even know what the United Nations does. All I know is everybody hates it. And she went back, and she spoke with you know her husband, talked to her family about you know the the role, and you know she she really followed the advice of her parents, which was you know whatever you do, be great at it, and make sure that people remember you for it. And you know after you know some negotiating, she she accepted the job, and you know a few weeks after she did, um, while she was going through the the confirmation process. Um, UNSCR, UN Security Council Resolution 2334 came up in in the, in the council, and um, for those of you who, who who need a reminder, is you know 2334 um, was the resolution that condemned Israeli settlements. Um, and Ambassador Haley talks in her book about how she had contacted you know Ambassador at the time Samantha Power. Um, never got a call back um, from her, and she really decided early on, then and there, that the United States under her tenure was going to stand up for its friends. Um, the United States, for the, that resolution, abstained um, and really sort of turned turned its back on on Israel. And Ambassador Haley um, really sort of drew a line in the sand that said, "We're going to take names," you know. We may, it may not be popular. We may not be the most popular kid uh, in camp here, but we're going to be a leader and we're going to stand up for our friends. And she did that throughout her tenure. Um, and for, for for my from my experience, you know, I you know I work was a I was working on a Senate Foreign Relations Committee you know, when she was nominated, and I helped with her confirmation. Um, she is quite possibly the only nominee I ever had that actually took copious amounts of notes and asked very probing detailed questions during my, during my meeting with her. I I had never had uh, a nominee do that. And she was just so spot on and ready to, to really take on the job. And I, I really admired that and knew I wanted to work for her.
0: And, and you're only you 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 were familiar with the UN system at this point because you'd worked in international affairs, foreign relations. But still, it's a it's a very specific kind of bureaucracy, different from the congressional bureaucracy. I mean, there's nothing quite like it, really, is there?
1: So, Cliff, you make a really good point in that um, Congress runs oversight of U.S. actions at the United Nations. Congress itself doesn't actually negotiate any of these mandates, or you know, uh, do any uh, do any of the negotiating. Congress really ha- is is the funding and runs oversight of of the State Department, um, and so as a result, it's it's one thing to actually sort of be you know asking for reports and you know making um, you know. Uh, 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 making recommendations and you know making sure that the administration is aware of what the Hill thinks—it's—it's it's quite another to to actually be affecting change at Turtle Bay. Um, and so, actually going from Capitol Hill to to the U.S. mission to the UN was quite different because you're you're an actual practitioner um, as opposed to um, uh, one who who practices oversight.
0: Another thing that, tell me if you think I'm wrong. Morgan, you start on this, but I want, Rich, I want to hear a little discussion between the two. you? I think there are, I've heard sort of two views on the UN. So there are some people who see the UN as largely irrelevant, a kind of a debating society, a collection of bureaucracies, probably not worth a whole lot of intention. It's there. That's fine. And then there are others who see it, uh, Americans and Europeans as well, as very much an evolving world government, a global maker of international laws, with a secretary general who is is or should be something akin to a, a world president. And then there are people in between of these things. Is am I right in that, Morgan? Or do you do you see public perception, American and foreign, in a different through a different lens?
1: So I think look, I mean, in, in my perspective, the United States. Doesn't really have much to prove at the United Nations, to be quite frank. You know, since the UN's founding, the the international community has really looked to the United States, frankly, as sort of the standard bearer for freedom, peace, and prosperity. It really has sort of defined international norms, right? And so, the United States really it already sort of perceives itself as as the the world leader, and and most member states look to the United States as as that world leader. Um, now, I think we can sort of talk about sort of those shifting dynamics as we see a, a resurgent China in the mix. And I'm sure we'll get to that in a bit. But um, when it really comes down to it, you know, the UN doesn't really do a lot for the United States um, but we also have a lot to lose if we do nothing at the UN. If we, if we stand by and stay silent, then others other powers will come in and fill that gap i.e. I, you know russia and china but um you know apart from having you know that permanent seat on the u.n security council you know with veto power the united states you know is almost like every con- other country in the general assembly we all have one vote and so you know often when the ga votes you know it's it's the united states and israel on one side and even our you know our allies and partners that we stick with and other international organizations like NATO are are on the other side of us, on the other side of the vote. So, um, especially when it comes to issues such as defending Israel. Um, So when it really comes down to, I I think you do see a a split between um, the United States on on one side and then everyone else on on the other. Um, I think it's also important to mention though that you know, the United States pays more into the UN system, both voluntary and assessed contributions more than any other member state. Um, and so we we have a lot of leverage in that. Um, but at the same time, when you really think about it, it's not a very reliable business model for the UN system to really rely on one mega donor. Um, and so I think that that leaves a lot of you know opportunity for exploration and reform as well.
0: And and Rich, you know, as the mega donor, you would think we would. Have some demands on the organization and on its members, many of whom also get support from the U.S. and, and not others. Um, and yet, and I'm not entirely sure why it is that our European allies and NATO members don't vote with us on a consistent basis. I don't think it takes that much courage for Germany or France or the U.K. to do that, or Denmark or the Netherlands for that for that matter. And in the smaller countries, also, they're going to come to us asking a lot of things, and yet. They feel very free. Have for over years and years to say no. We're going to, we're going to vote against the U.S. I don't think we're going to pay much of a price for it. What the, what the heck? And by the way, they're they're right in this that the U.S. hasn't made them pay much of a price. Partly because there has been a view, I think, until Nikki Haley was at the U.N., that oh, it doesn't matter. Boys will be boys. We don't expect a lot. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, it's okay. It's okay. Oh, sorry. We don't expect a lot from the UN, and um, we still, what, what we say are international norms, those are international norms, even if the, the truth is the expressions of the General Assembly, which are meant to be the sense of the international community, are, are absolutely in contradiction with everything we believe and stand for. Go ahead, Rich, Rick, talk about that a little.
2: I think you're touching on probably one of the most complex dynamics that exists. That is the reason we have so many problems in the international organization space, and why we have disagreement in Washington over how to handle it. Uh, where you could be the mega donor, the number one donor, and have a, a very strong school of thinking in Washington, which is we can't exercise that influence. We can't bully people. We can't be pushing people around. We can't condition this aid. We have to act as if we are one of all other voices, that we're no more important than the smallest donor at the table. The views of the People's Republic of China need to be taken into account as much as our views as well. We need to work diplomatically to build consensus, consensus, which means, yes, we may not get everything according to our values and priorities, but we'll get the best thing we possibly could by working together, et cetera. Now, obviously the, the opposite approach uh, of just picking up sticks and leaving, sometimes leaves a vacuum as well, which you don't want to see. Uh, because if the Europeans still have a certain mindset and China and Russia are still at the table and there's still enough resources and infrastructure to do damage to US interests, you don't want to you know, just have walked away and not have replaced, peeled away, continue to degrade, et cetera. So there is, there is some balance here. But the complexity that I want to touch on and really open up is this. You know, you, you go back to sort of your IR theory 101 and you probably remember your professor talking about uh, theories of universalism as a concept, international relations, uh, that there is a certain, le- you know, core idea, set of values that crosses boundaries of states, uh, that there are certain things that keep us all together as humans. And that as we think about our foreign policy and our foreign interests, that, you know, that those core values uh, you know, today you you may come close to calling it globalists, you know, I think some some would call it that needs to be the governing structure of the world that really supersedes your own sovereign ideas, sovereign rules, uh, sovereign goals. Uh, if that in some ways is conflicting with the global good. Uh, it's a it's a utilitarian uh, type mentality communitarianism, universalism, all wrapped into one. Uh, And so the social dynamics, the social politics of Europe, therefore get projected into this universal concept at the UN of how we need to use international organizations to solve all social problems, even if that's not what the original intent of these organizations were, and therefore we're gonna project our domestic political views into that dynamic. And there will be times when we will agree with our European allies and we'll be able to be on the same page. And there are times when we'll disagree, especially depending on which political party in Washington's in power. We think about issues that are very controversial in the United States, where we've seen a whiplash go back and forth between the Obama administration to the Trump administration to Biden. And the Europeans are you know, saying, why do you keep going in and out of some conventions? Why do you keep coming? Well, we have disagreements politically at home over how to solve some of these issues and the best ways to go about them. That's where this, this tension between sovereignty, international organizations comes into play, which was a thread that you saw Secretary Pompeo and Ambassador Haley and others r- really pull on. The question, though, is there, there was at some point at the founding of the UN a commitment to a concept of universalism on certain core human rights, on certain core values, that if we could hold the international community to account on those, we could prevent another Holocaust. We could prevent genocide. We could could say this is something that actually does cross borders and we're going to hold all nations to account. When you look at something like human rights, that might make sense. When you look at genocide, that might make sense when you start looking at all social issues and how to solve them, you start losing the true priorities, the true values that do bind all of us together. And therefore you enter an international arena where you say, we wanna hand over all rulemaking for every problem in the world to this global body and treat everybody's vote equally. You start losing your own sovereignty And you start diluting what is a true democratic value. And now authoritarians are able to weigh in on what these values should be, what these rules should be. And now there's really no semblance left of what you thought you were promoting 76 years ago. You know, just a quick
0: point is the the universal declaration of human rights. Interesting, universal, not even international, universal. like on Mars and Venus, this is how they think too. Where the idea that all these nations have signed off on it and therefore believe it is nice and comforting, but they don't. I mean, we know they don't uh, all subscribe to these rights or guarantee these rights or even aspire to. And you know, Freedom House is saying that over the last 15 years, there are fewer free nations and fewer freedoms than ever. So, and I can't, I can't it's a nice aspiration that we had that Eleanor Roosevelt had that others had, but I don't think it's come to fruition. But to be more specific, uh, Morgan, you know, there are a number of bad actors at the UN. China is not the only bad actor, but China is, I would say when I say China, I mean China's rulers, the communist party of China, Beijing, I don't mean most most of the billion Chinese by any means, but they have been the most uh, effective, determined and strategic of bad actors. In other words, they seem to have recognized in a way that I'm not sure the US did, that these international organizations and the UN organization itself could be useful to them, to their national interests um, and to their ambitions, uh, some of them hegemonic regionally, and uh, I think long-term beyond that. And all they had to do is turn these organizations their way and they could do that in various ways, not through necessarily persuasion, but through bullying,
2: probably through
0: bribing, whatever way they can. And, it, it took a long time for people to wake up. And I'll just make one more point, and then I want to hear your thoughts. And that is in, at least in part because there was, I think, on a bipartisan basis, a long-standing belief that if we bring China into this international system, they would see that it's useful to them and that they're stakeholders. And yeah, it's American-led, but that's okay. And yeah, it's liberal, but they're moderating as they get richer. And yeah, it's rules-based, but the rules apply to everyone, so this is good. And they looked at that and they said, yeah, that's that's a fun idea, but, that, but we, we we have better ideas and we're gonna utilize this organization to diminish the American power and influence and expand our own and we'll see if you notice. And there are a number of examples you might wanna mention. One is the, the World Trade Organization, bringing them in, helping enrich them, letting them have the status of a developing nation in the World Trade Organizations when they no longer were really a developing nation letting them cheat and not holding them to account, letting them steal intellectual property by the hundreds of billions of dollars from us. And we'd scold them and ask them to stop, but we didn't, it didn't, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. So I've I've raised, I've opened a a number of boxes for you. Morgan, pick your, pick your box.
1: We may not be able to put the genie back in the bottle, Cliff. (laughs) Um, No, I think that was very aptly put. And I mean, bottom line, China is seeking to remake the world order in its own image. It's an authoritarian image, but it's its image. And I think, you know, behind closed doors um, at the UN, China will tell you that look, the United States was, you know, a major influence in in the shaping of the United Nations. You had your chance, right? Now we are on the rise. We are going to. We have our domestic policy agenda. And you know what, it is our foreign policy, it is, our foreign policy agenda affects everything at home so we are going to project strength abroad. Um, and it's doing that through the international community through multilateral organizations. And China is doing that at a number of levels. You can see the influence of the Belt Road Initiative within uh, the, the, UN. Um, the UN. The UN, the Undersecretary General for the Department of Economic and Social Affairs, is Chinese um, and has had significant success. In, in spreading BRI propaganda throughout the organization and getting UN funds and programs to, to adopt many of, of, of the principles of BRI, um, and as well as funding.
0: And, and we just say, very quickly, Belt and Road Initiative, in case people don't know, this is an internationalist um, venture on China's part. They say it's going to help with development. I think critics of it, I'd be among them, would say, no, it's really about chinese neo-colonialism in africa and a lot of other places where they're getting port facilities where they're getting natural resources where they where there is no no evidence that they are really helping these countries around the world that they are that they would say we're connecting with and you can correct me or add to that but i want to make sure people know what bri is when they listen sure
1: sure so as it seeks to you know expand its domestic agenda through through its foreign policy um, I think what we're also seeing is that not only are we seeing this through through a policy um, through through a policy push, but also through um, through elections, UN elections. We see uh, China really has made a push for the head of specialized agencies. You know, ICAO, um, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is you know includes we have a chapter in the monograph as well as the International Telecommunications Union. Um, and I know I'm missing a third and a fourth, but like the China has really made a strong push to, to lead these organizations. Thankfully, under the Trump administration, when China pursued the head of WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, we were able to, to, to defeat that, um, that campaign. Uh,
0: and let me just emphasize here, when we're talking about the World Intellectual Property Organization, we're talking about the recognized leading thief in all of history of intellectual property. That's what the People's Republic of China is, leading thief of intellectual property, saying, Yes, we'd like to be the head of the World Intellectual Property Organization. I mean, that's totally putting the Fox in charge of the Exactly. It
1: is exactly what I was gonna say. Um, so so bottom line that you know China's making inroads through through personnel as well, right? Um, and I think the United States has a huge, huge opportunity there, and we can get that into that later. So we're seeing China take part in other elements um, of 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 UN leadership, particularly in international peacekeeping through both in-kind contributions as well as peacekeepers boots on the grounds themselves. Um, and Brad Bowman and I have a really good piece in the dispatch that sort of outlines China's um, peacekeeping influence in Africa that I encourage listeners to, to check out. Um, but in addition to that, it's that's that's sort of at the, the, the optical level. That's what the international community sees China doing. What they don't necessarily chi- see China do is, is actually change the language of UN Security Council mandates. They in- negotiate um, budgeting provisions within the UN's fifth committee, which is the um, which is the, the budgeting committee of, of the General Assembly. Um, and they're really able to to utilize some of these very sort of inside baseball mechanisms to actually you know, degrade human rights um, and, and all of these you know, peace and security principles that the United States and others you know, ad- adhere to. Um, I think a really good example of this is you know, most recently that the UN um, uh, peacekeeping operation in, in Abyeh, uh, a disputed region in, in between South Sudan and Sudan, um, human rights, the concept of human rights was actually watered down in the latest resolution um, and back in May. And so I think it's really important, excuse me, it was April. So I think it's important for people to realize that China's having influence at the most base level that is completely unseen by, by the casual observer, um, and that it's really important for um, member states more specifically for the United States to play a major role in, in shaping how these um, how these resolutions are crafted because ultimately that's how standards are, are set within the international community.
0: You know, wh- one of the agencies that's on people's minds a lot and should be is the World Health Organization. The U.S. funded it, I think, at 10 times the levels that China funded it, yet the head of it, Dr. Tedros, who's an Ethiopian, I think it was very clear that he was their guy, that they had him and probably so do in their pocket very much. And the organization, I think, I think it's pretty obvious, performed very badly um, throughout this pandemic that came out of China and was very protective of the Chinese um, and I think that, that Meant the loss of many more lives than was necessary and much more economic devastation. Now, just Rich, think about it. I, I had dinner with someone the other night, a well known writer, I won't mention her name. And she said, You know what a blunder it was for Trump to leave the WHO. And I said, You know, I'm not sure because what would you suggest is the preferable alternative? Certainly, it's not what President Biden. Has done, which is to say, okay, we're coming back in. We're restoring the funding. Uh, we'll keep pay writing the checks, and we'll not demand any reforms whatsoever. We will hope that through our reparticipation, our engagement, everything will come out okay. So even if, if you even if you agree, Trump made a mistake in withdrawing. Nothing we've done cor- corrects it. And I, now I want to get your thoughts on that, Rich. But what maybe what your thoughts on what is or what would be, if not the best policy, the least bad policy, to an organization that is under Chinese influence, that has performed incompetently and perhaps corruptly and um, and is not gonna and, and, and I don't think and it's not trustworthy yet going forward on anything that has to do with the People's Republic of China?
2: Well, in that situation, uh, having talked to a lot of people uh, who were involved uh, last year, Uh, The truth is is that the move the Trump administration made actually prompted a a pretty strong multilateral discussion of reform for the WHO. And the minute the U.S. resumed funding without getting a single reform, that leverage disappeared. Uh, And so, you know, our money, our influence, our leadership uh, is leverage. We don't want to be a bully. We're not trying to go into the schoolyard and push people around and say it's our way or the highway. But at the same time, we have to have principles and values and standards of oversight, uh, standards of performance. We are an investor in an organization. You don't give your money to a nonprofit uh, and say, "Do whatever you want." I don't know what'll happen, but let's let, hit me up for more next year. Just let hope it goes well, right? And. Total corruption goes on, uh, undue influence from bad actors, failure of primary core missions. And you say, great. Yeah. How much would you like next year? Right. That that that's crazy. Uh, And to think that just showing up at the board meeting and patting everyone on the back and saying, yeah, tough year. How do we do better next year? Here's the check. Anybody who thinks that that's how you get uh, reform or changes in any organization, uh, I, I think is really out to lunch. Uh, At the same time, we have to sort of be aware in advance of these elections, vet these candidates, work with our allies. Elections in the UN organizations like these matter. Uh, Tedros had a reputation. He was already rumored to be under the influence of China going back uh, to his health ministry post uh, in Ethiopia. Um, We look forward now. There's going to be a re-election, it looks like, uh, for Tedros to continue on after a global pandemic after covering up the origins of COVID-19, after the Assad regime of Syria gets an election post, after using chemical weapons against people, uh, to the Executive Council, WHO. Uh, After, in two annual meetings uh, during a global pandemic, the organization pauses to condemn the state of Israel, as if that's what the WHO should be doing uh, in the middle of COVID-19. Uh, so, you know, on every count, you have a very broken organization here that failed in its core mission, uh, that continues to fail in its core mission. But it it is something with great potential. And it can play a very important role. And if we walk away from it completely and don't continue to try to steer reform using the leverage we have with our allies, then very bad actors can use it uh, with very bad outcomes.
0: And Morgan's kind of similarly, Ambassador Halley led the effort to withdraw the U.S. from the U.N. Human Rights Council, which she called in the foreword to this monograph, a cesspool of human rights violators. She's not mincing any words there. Uh, and President Biden is seeking now to have the U.S. reelected to this cesspool. Again, no reforms demanded, uh, nothing about American taxpayer dollars which, which, which go to it. It's not an easy organization to reform. Um, It is dominated by human rights violators. In fact, it's a great place for a human rights violator to get elected to because it kind of gives them impunity. And it's not like there haven't been attempts to reform it. Years ago, there was a UN Human Rights Commission. I remember when that, we, 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 people gave up on it and they said, we're going to change this profoundly. We're going to give it a new name. It's not going to be a commission. It's going to be a council. And boy, is that going and I remember people from the State Department oversee the, coming to see me at FDD and saying, we want, we just want to show you, we've done some great negotiating here. And we, we really, we've changed everything here. And I remember saying, well, I, I hope you're right. i I well, I wasn't as skeptical and probably as cynical then as I am now. But I find a, as cynical as I get, I can't I kind of can't just keep keep up with everything. So talk a little bit about the about UN Human Rights Council. And is, is there anything better to do than not be on it and not give it legitimacy? I think my view is Nikki Haley was right. But maybe if the and and getting back to what Rich said, maybe if the US is off it for a while, maybe our allies say, well, they have a, the Americans have a point. Let's see if we can reform it and make it good enough that the U.S. wants to rejoin and re-engage.
1: No, Cliff, no, you, you bring up a really good point about we want to, to, to revisit it. Um, to be quite frank, we really worked with our allies um, and partners to try to reform it, and there was no buy-in, quite frankly. Um, the U.N. Human Rights Council was a broken organization when we came in, and it's a bro- and it continues to be a broken organization. We tried to fix it. Um, Ambassador Haley really led a strong push for reform um, to bring accountability to, to the organization. And frankly, we weren't able to get enough buy-in from some of our closest allies and partners who you know claim to, to be the standard bearers for, for human rights. Um, and I think that was a real disappointment for us. Um, and as a result, we cut our losses. Um, it was an organization that you know we were legitimizing with our presence, and so for us, um, and for, for Ambassador Haley in particular, she she really made the the brave move with with uh, Secretary Pompeo to to announce the U.S. Uh, uh, departure from the organization. And I think you know what we're seeing with with the Biden administration coming in, in now is that there's this there's this knee jerk reaction to just reverse everything that the Trump administration did. We see this with the WHO, and we're seeing this with the announcement that the United States is going to run um, for election on the Human Rights Council. And again, the United States loses its leverage when it claims it's going to rejoin without getting anything in return. And so to to Rich's point, I I think that the the Biden administration really sort of needs to to rethink the conditions for U.S. return um, and and what that will look like, and see if they can't use any of that as leverage.
0: And before before we leave this topic, and Richman, and maybe there's no answer to this. I don't understand. Do you have theories about why our allies, why the British, the French, the Norwegians, why would they not want to? Take some pains to improve an organization that is so bad. Why would they not say, "You're right. Let's figure out a way to do this." Why? I mean, they 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 argue that they and they posture that they care about human rights. They do in their own country, certainly. Why would they? Why why are they so reluctant to get any skin in the game?
1: One of the patterns that uh, we experienced in New York was that. The Europeans don't often don't like to rock the boat. Um, they often defer to the status quo. We saw this not only um, when it came to to UN Security Council mandates, um, but also when it came to to major reforms. Um, there was often a, a reluctance to, um, to 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 rock the boat, and um, that the status quo was often the sort of the preferred method um, for for operating. And so when we were unable to to get commitments um, and and support for for genuine reform and accountability um, that would frankly level the playing field and ensure that Israel was treated um, as uh, as it should, um, without bias and without any sort of anti-Semitic prejudice, um, that was absent.
2: I I would add the the following. Uh, When multilateralism, the term, the concept the, the objective becomes the end state goal, that that is your religion, that is your ideology. As long as we are talking in a multilateral setting, so long as we have an organization that is multilateral, that, that's great. That, that's what we need. We need more multilateralism, whatever that means. Then you've completely lost objectivity of what we were supposed to be working on. Uh, because if that was the if that's the goal, and it doesn't matter who's in the club, and it doesn't matter what you're working on, as long as it's multilateral, uh, then multilateral really, you know, multilateralism uh, has no identifiable redeeming, redeeming quality uh, for advancing the interests of democracies and freedom. Um, I would say, going back, Cliff, to to one of your last questions. And, and hearing Morgan talk about the Human Rights Council and, and the contrast between the WHO and Human Rights Council, this is a nuance I think we get into in the monograph. We have to recognize that there are organizations that have governance structures that do lend themselves to US influence if we are going to put our back into it and really use that influence, use all the leverage we can, get our allies together, form a common picture, push back against authoritarians, and condition our assistance. Say we're not going to give money as a group to WHO if states that kill their own people with chemical weapons are going to somehow be elected to the executive uh, club, to the executive board. Um, We're not going to allow... WHO to help that government in Syria in any way. We're not going to stand for our money being used to advance systemic anti-Semitism inside this body and anti-Semitism using the working definition that the State Department uses, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And we are going to have basic standards of oversight and performance metrics. If you don't meet them, then something has to change or the money goes away, right? WHO is a place where that could happen with U.S. leadership. You have other organizations that were conceived and created with a complete inability to achieve reform because of the governance structure. The U.N. Human Rights Council is one of those organizations. We can't just say, oh, we're going to cut our funding. We're going to walk away. Oh, we're going to get our our, our votes in. Oh, let, let's work together to get a different." Uh, director General or different Secretary General doesn't work that way, right? The elections are secret ballot. UNGA uh, we're electing from everybody. You know there is no board of governors like there is in other uh, specialized agencies. Uh, there's no oversight of the funds from the U.S. And so there's very little ability for us to move the needle there. The question then is, why do our European allies, why do fellow democracies stick around for such a crazy ride? And at that point, I would say we need to create alternatives. We need to say, this is broken. This is legitimizing dictators and authoritarians. The governance structure itself, unless overhauled by the GA, is broken and does not allow for any reform. We need a league of democracies, not a league of nations. And if we're going to really talk about basic common values that we have as democracies, we're gonna have social differences, but there are basic universal human rights that we do agree with, and that we need to actually talk about and 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 try to bring people together on to to fulfill that promise of never again, then let's create that forum separate from authoritarians that try to hijack them. Morgan, you have some thoughts on, on that?
1: Right. I just want to hit on uh, Rich's point about you know, why why are European actors so opposed to this? And it, it occurred to me that our European friends were terrified of making the Human Rights Council more accountable and more transparent. Why? Because they did not want to have blowback on them for doing so. When we have elect, when the UN Human Rights Council has elections and those votes are made public, they don't want retaliation by Russia or China against them or other member states for that matter. When
0: So they're afraid of Russia and China. They're not afraid of the US. You <laughs> no, I mean, is that correct?
1: Am I wrong? Well, no, I mean, I think that there is, there's genuine fear by, by member states in the council that if, there is more transparency and there is more accountability, then they will become targets uh, through through political I mean
0: this is a case where elections should not be by secret ballot. We should know how, I don't know how Mexico is voting, uh, who they're voting for, if they're voting for you know Syria, uh, if they're voting for Burma, if they're voting for uh, human rights violators to be on the Human Rights Council. I think the world should know that. I think um, we should know that.
1: No. Right. No. One hundred percent. But I think that sort of goes to you know, Ambassador Haley's point of you know this being a cesspool of human rights violators. Um, the the fact that these political interests are are so enmeshed just ingrained in the fabric of of the council that it impedes any hope for reform demonstrates why the human rights council in this case. Um, should, should be completely reformed,
0: if not scrapped. Rich, anything you want to add, but also we were kind of running low on time. You should just briefly talk to us about some of the other international organizations that you covered in the monograph. We can come back with subsequent broadcasts and do a deeper dive, but maybe just a few words on some of the other ones that people might not know. They're not as famous or infamous as the UN Human Rights Council and the World Health Organization.
2: Yeah, International Telecommunication Union, uh, Morgan talked about a little bit. This is a very important, very small, obscure standard making body. Uh, when we think of 5G standards, uh, other sort of Internet, next generation telecom standards, this is the body that comes together, both governments and the private sector to discuss, uh, currently led uh, by a Chinese national Uh, While Huawei is around the world trying to sell uh, their equipment and systems, and the U.S. and their allies are warning others don't use those uh, due to significant security risks, Uh, they sit at the perch of an organization to set standards in that space uh, and to promote it. Uh, The World Trade Organization, obviously a flashpoint uh, during the Trump administration, continues to be a a worry. Uh, As we look at uh, how the Chinese are able to, again, as we see across uh, different conventions and rules uh, throughout the international system, uh, steal international uh, intellectual property, uh, violate uh, uh, trade uh, agreements, uh, trade uh, rules uh, set out by WTO or operate in spaces where WTO rules don't even apply uh, because they haven't been reworked in many, many years. Uh, and so you know there is a a process that needs to be undertaken at the WTO for a fundamental reform How do you resolve disputes? What rules need to be updated to hold China accountable for some of its coercive trade practices? The International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, one of the specialized agencies, Uh, this again, until I think still for a couple more months uh, to be led uh, by a Chinese national, there will be a replacement coming uh, from Latin America uh, to take over the organization. But during the tenure of a Chinese national, a cyber attack uh, from China, Uh, that exposed uh, U.S. uh, and other global aerospace companies, including defense contractors, uh, to further cyber attack. Uh, And this was covered up by the Chinese national in charge of the organization, a very important body when we think about standard setting uh, in civil aviation around the world. People have heard of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they know the issues there with Iran's uh, long-term ambitions uh, for nuclear weapons. Russia continuing to block and tackle, not just for Iran, but for Syria as well at the IAEA, a place where the U.S. can and needs to assert uh, its influence and leadership. The OPCW as well, sometimes in the news as we've seen chemical weapons attacks in Syria, Russia's own use of chemical uh, weapons uh, and chemical agents uh, against uh, their uh, political opponents. Um, And this is an organization, again, where Russia tries to uh, fuel disinformation, uh, just try to fuel discord, undermine uh, the international norms on the use of chemical weapons. Uh, We've talked about uh, the Human Rights Council already. We've talked about peacekeeping, Morgan touched on that. We need to look at all these peacekeeping agencies. We are spending so much money, not just on the UN as a whole, not just on these small agencies, but the peacekeeping budget that the United States supports is massive as well. We're talking a billion dollars just on the peacekeeping missions uh, or more.
0: And by the way, the peacekeeping missions have been rife with corruption, including all kinds of sexual uh, crimes for years and years and years.
2: There are issues like those that need to be addressed. There's issues of Chinese participation and whether or not we're indirectly subsidizing training for the PLA from our contributions, which I think most Americans would be horrified to learn. Uh, but also there's just basic oversight of why was this uh, institution created? What is the mandate of this force? Is it working? Should we keep just forking over money to have it there? The United Nations interim force in Lebanon, a great example, Tony Badron, our colleague at FDD has written on this uh, for years. The Trump administration tried to make some dents uh, in reform. Uh, the French and others have fought uh, for that mandate to continue uh, and again, No return on investment. When we look at the missile flow into uh, Hezbollah, the precision guided munitions, Uh, we we see Hezbollah stashes caches of weapons uh, uncovered right next to UN peacekeepers. uh, Conflicts across the line of disputes that go on uh, right under their nose with their with their permission. Uh, Again, we need to take a look, not just at UNIFIL, but other peacekeeping forces as well. And then we also have uh, a handful of organizations that work to undermine peace in the Middle East, uh, that work to foment the systemic anti-Semitism we see throughout the UN system. Several uh, Palestinian organizations at the UN uh, that are duplicative in nature, uh, exist just to torment the state of Israel, really serve no purpose at this point, particularly in the wake of the Abraham Accords, as we've seen normalization, Uh, Peace between Arab states and Israel continued to advance. And ultimately, one of the greatest institutional barriers to peace between Palestinians and Israelis, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, uh, for so-called Palestinian refugees, something set up back in 1950 uh, when there was uh, a refugee population in the aftermath of the Israeli War of Independence. Obviously, Jewish refugees existed in the same numbers at the same time. They were absorbed uh, into Israel. The UN uh, put uh, Arab refugees into uh, refugee camps, Arab states refused to absorb them to keep them as political pawns, you know, 70 plus years on uh, this no longer makes any sense as those same Arab countries now normalize uh, with Israel and look to uh, have relations. Uh, And uh, we see uh, all that UNRWA is now is a welfare agency uh, for people to not allow the Palestinians to actually prepare uh, for institution building uh, towards statehood and instead keep the mythology of some so-called right of return where millions of people will flood into Israel proper and at the ballot box erase the Jewish state. Uh, overnight, something that will never happen, but but raise a generation after generation to hate Israel, hate Jews, uh, and to block any hope of a lasting peace. So we have a lot of organizations here uh, that we have featured. Again, this is not all the organizations, there are hundreds, uh, but they give you a flavor, uh, some of the most important, some of the functions, uh, some of the kinds of organizations we need to be looking at. Some have very big budgets, big funding streams from the U.S. taxpayer, some not so big. But in each case, we need a plan. We need a strategy. Are we going to be in it? If we're going to be in it, is it working? If it's not working, how are we going to fix it? If we're not going to be in it, why are we sure we need to walk away? And if we're going to walk away, how are we going to make sure it doesn't continue to exist after we leave just for China, Russia, and other uh, malign actors to take advantage
0: you know, and, and President Biden has said things starting very early in his administration that would suggest he does understand there is this competition, that there is this challenge from authoritarian states, not least, uh, probably most from the People's Republic of China. But this is obviously not an easy fix. If it were, it would have been done by now. It's going to require, and this is going to be my last subject, requ- it requires the White House. It requires the State Department. Uh, It requires Congress to be on the same page and to have what you rightly call, Rich, a strategy. Are we going to cut off funding? Are we going to send our diplomats out and get them to bring our allies on side with us? That should be a diplomatic chore that is doable, easier than getting the Iranian regime on side with us. Are we going to set up an alternative organization? But there's got to be a strategy for these, and this has to be a priority, and it it hasn't been up to now and it isn't at this moment that I can see in the Biden administration. Morgan, your last thoughts, and then Rich, any last thoughts you have?
1: You know, the Biden administration is has taken a much similar tone to, to the Obama administration. And unfortunately, so far, that is sort of the 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 continuity of of, or excuse me, a return to the status quo of, of what it was under Obama. And I think that. The United States under President Trump was often the skunk at the Garden Party, Um, but it was also seen as a world leader and it was taken seriously. Um, The Biden administration has taken a very different tone. Um, And I think while there is a renewed focus on China, there needs to be um, a stronger push for US interests, um, and, and one that isn't afraid to break some China. Um, right now, we we haven't seen that happen. <laughs> there you go. No pun intended. Um, but we, we, we need to break some China over this. And it, and if that means um, maintaining um, many of the policies of, of the Trump administration, I, I encourage the Biden administration to sort to, to of rethink its current trajectory and, and determine, whether or not um, some of those policies from the Trump administration were actually worth keeping.
0: Rich, your final concluding remarks.
2: There is such a thing and could and should be such a thing as an international rules-based order that the US leads and we should be proud to lead it. Just engaging with authoritarians and other nations is not a strategy, just showing up to a party a cocktail hour, conducting some diplomacy and saying job well done will not advance U.S. interests. However, if we very methodically look at our interests, both U.S. sovereign interests and the interests of the international community of democracies and what that means and which organizations are advancing those interests and which are not, and we take stock of our levers of influence in each of them. And if the administration won't do this, then Congress can do this. And we start on an agency by agency basis, clawing our way back to influence and leadership, then we will defend US interests and we will push back on the malign activities of our toughest adversaries.
0: Very interesting conversation. I've learned a lot, Rich, congratulations on editing this monograph Morgan, thanks for all your good work, both on this and with, uh, with Ambassador Haley, uh, to be continued. But for now, thanks for talking to us today. And thanks to all of you for joining us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpoticy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.